Lord Jesus, that we would look to you, our only hope for rescue, and our lives would be built upon the strong foundation that is you, our rock and redeemer. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. Psalm 40 uh, this morning actually invites us to do something that I always feel a little bit guilty about. Uh, I don't know about you, but uh, I sometimes will let my mind wander and I begin to think uh, of what my life would have been if, fill in the blank, uh, what would have happened if if I had gone to that school? Uh, What would have happened if I had taken this job? Uh, What would have happened if I had married this person? Uh, what would have happened uh, if I moved uh, to this city? And I, it's an exercise in futility, of course. Uh, you know, we don't know where we, we would go. We only know uh, where we are. But that doesn't prevent us from looking back on our lives and really looking and seeing how God has moved uh, and operated uh, in and through us. I've never met anybody who has lived uh, to a ripe old age and and 80 to 90 years uh, look back on their lives and said, no, that's exactly how I thought it was going to go. Things went absolutely according to plan. Uh, They don't. Uh, go that way, and yet uh, that's why the psalmist puts such an emphasis on knowing who our rescuer is and knowing that our lives are in his hands. And so David in this psalm wants us to actually reflect on, do you know what you've been rescued from? And and do you know that actually you're in continual need of rescue uh, throughout your life And that the rescue is not just a one-time limited thing and then God says, well, now that you're saved, you're on your own. But in fact, uh, he is in the business of constantly jumping into the sea of craziness that is our lives and rescuing us. And so with David, we think this morning about what it means to be rescued and what God has done in our lives and where he's worked in and through us. You know, for many of us in the church, our testimony is one that some of us probably can't uh, remember a time when we weren't Christians. Now, that was partly true for me. There was a point uh, when I was in junior high where uh, I knew Jesus as Savior and uh, I was a Christian. Uh, But the real meaning of Jesus being the Lord of my life uh, really took hold and took root. And so even if we grew up in the church, there's normally some turning point uh, in our lives where we realize the mess that we're in and we finally cry out, Uncle. And that's why David says that he's rescued us from the miry clay that we, he inclined our, his ear to us, he heard us, and he stooped down and he rescued us out of this mire and sets our feet upon a rock, making our steps secure. At Camp St. Christopher in the Diocese of South Carolina, right on the Atlantic Ocean, beautiful camp, uh, one of the long-standing traditions there as a camper of any age is to visit the mud pit And the mud pit is right behind the beach, and it is just a huge area of miry clay. Uh, It's just this pluff mud, and everyone jumps into it, and uh, they get real messy and dirty, and uh, your friends are there. You have to be helped out because you begin to sink down into it, and you get stuck, and and people pull you out. And I was uh, walking through camp one day and uh, went into a room, and there was a room that was about 50 by 50 filled with shelves. And on those shelves were shoes. 
And so I asked the camp director, I kind of knew the answer, and I said, where'd you get all the shoes from? He said, from the mud pit. And I thought, you, you went down to the mud pit and, and dug them all out? And he said, no, 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 no. He said, probably every couple months we have a big bull tide that comes in and picks up the shoes and washes them out, and we pick them up. And all of a sudden I thought, why are we letting children play in this? Yeah, they're going to be washed out to sea. And that is the nature of sin. I mean, you think that things are fine and you're having a glorious time and you might get a little bit stuck, uh, but you have no idea of the danger of judgment that is coming down, uh, down the way. Uh, it's bliss, but the moment you realize that the bull tide is moving in, that's when you cry out for mercy. That's when you say, Lord, save me from this miry pit that I can't get out of on my own. David echoing that moment in Jeremiah's ministry where the king put him in a miry pit and it took 30 men and ropes and pulleys to get him out. And so in the same way, those of us who are Christians, we know what it means to be rescued from the miry clay. We know what it means to be saved from our sins. We know what it means to be saved from judgment. We know what it is to enter into a full relationship with God who is now our Heavenly Father because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We can understand that. We can feel that in our hearts. But interestingly enough, if you have your Bibles open, looking further beyond where uh, our psalm goes this morning, picking up in verse 12. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Now, some commentaries, very few, but some have a real hard time with this psalm because they say, well, this must be two psalms that were put together. Because how can David the psalmist say, you rescued me from the miry clay, but now I need you to rescue me again? Well, I would ask those commentators if they've lived 30 seconds in the Christian life. Because even if you've been taken out of the miry clay and set upon a solid rock, our lives in Jesus Christ are a series of continual pits and rescues. Now the difference is, is that in those moments, it's hard for us to connect the dots and actually seek Jesus out and cry for him to come and rescue us in those moments. Because God is in the saving business. He doesn't just save you from your sins. He doesn't just save you from judgment. He saves you. He cares for you full stop. I'm always amazed by the number of people who, uh, and I, coming, look, coming to the Advent is difficult. You've got to drive downtown and find a parking spot. Uh, and if you, I ran into one family with young children uh, who really love the breakfast because it's so much easier for them. And they said, yeah, we just dress the kids for church Saturday night and we just get them up Sunday and put them in the car. <laughs> Uh, but you got to get downtown, you got to find a, a parking spot, and then I mean, you walk up the front steps, and the two most obvious doors are locked, right? You got to find the secret member's door over here. To, to... It's, it's, no, uh, it's no easy feat uh, to do that. And then you get into the pew, and you think, okay, I'm going to block out all the stuff that I've had to deal with this past week. It's time for me to think about God. But in our communion service, we, we, don't, we don't believe that. 
Because what do we pray? Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. That's not just a prayer to God, but us coming to grips with the fact that what is on our mind and on our hearts is actually what God is concerned about. There's nothing that is trivial to God. You might think, you know, this is kind of rough right now, but, but I, I, you know, it's, it's too insignificant to pray for. Well, you have not because you ask not. But what about those moments that are not so seemingly trivial? When your faith is really shaken and it's really hard to discern where God is in the midst of all of it. You heard this morning uh, in our prayers, uh, we prayed for the Jensen family. When Philip Jensen came to preach here about a year ago, um, uh, it was really heavy on his heart because his grandson had just been diagnosed with cancer. Uh, they knew that it was going to be incurable. Uh, and Philip had a hard time being so far away from home with that fresh news weighing heavy on his heart. And I've been on an email list that's gone out all over the world from Nathan's dad, Andrew. And, uh, you know, Nathan prayer update number 15, 16, and so on and so forth. And just this week, uh, I received this email uh, from uh, Nathan's dad, Andrew, who is a vicar in, um, uh, in Sydney, Australia. Dear friends and family, I plan to write another Praying for Nathan email tomorrow. Yesterday was a year since Nathan's first brain tumor was diagnosed, and tomorrow will be a year since that tumor was surgically removed. But I can't ask you to pray for my son anymore. Instead, I ask you to thank God for his life. In his own timing, God took Nathan this morning. He stopped breathing, and quite a while later, his heart stopped beating at 9, 10 a.m. He deteriorated quite rapidly, and it was less drawn out than expected. But now I want to thank God for my son, and I ask you to turn your prayers of pleading to words of thanksgiving. His name was Nathan, and that means gift because he was our little gift from God when he was born, and for the 16 and a half years on earth, he still was gift. He was fun, opinionated, loyal, stubborn, sporty, and cool. He loved his siblings and wanted them to know that at several times when he thought he'd die. I won't write an obituary for him here, but we were blessed to know our son. He also trusted in God, even when he was really scared. A few weeks ago, when he was praying with Ruth, Philip's daughter, Nathan's mom, he prayed to God asking, God, I really don't want to die. But I also want to say, not my will, but yours be done. And if that means that I die, please be with me and use it for your glory. In spite of Nathan's quickly deteriorating condition, the family went on holiday around Christmas because it's the dead of summer there. And Andrew picks up on Tuesday when Nathan was taken to the hospital while they were on vacation. In so much pain, I took great comfort in knowing that in the tomorrow, whenever that would be, there would be one of three outcomes for Nathan and all would be wonderful him. Either one, Jesus would come back. Two, Nathan would be healed of his disease. Or three, Nathan would be taken to be with his Lord. 
Little did I know that the tomorrow would be so soon, and in fact, be only two days away. While Nathan was still responsive, I read Romans 5 to him. After I left, Nathan told Ruth that I was emotional, and he asked her to read Romans 5 again, which she did. On Wednesday, Ruth read through all of Mark's gospel with Nathan, and early this morning, we both read through Isaiah 40 with him. We prayed on many occasions, and one of the last words we remember our son saying was, Amen. Please, friends, don't feel that your prayers have failed or that God's purposes have failed. As a family, we have been upheld for the last year, and Nathan has stayed trusting God to the end. We also don't know what God has and will do through Nathan's suffering. We only know that he works all things for the good of those who love him, and that neither life nor death, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future can separate us from the love of God for us in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. What an amazing testimony of abiding faith in a Lord Jesus who must have seemed and felt so far away. And yet the testimony not only of a father who is watching his son die, who God the Father surely can relate with, crying out in faith, feeble as it may be, that I'm casting my anxieties and burdens upon you for you care for me. Lord, I don't know how rescue is going to happen, but rescue me. And moreover, a 16-year-old boy knowing that he was going to die and yet wanting above all for God to be glorified not just in his life but also in his death. This is what David is talking about. That there is division so often between our hearts and our heads. Some have called it the longest journey on the face of the earth. We know that God is sovereign. We know that he is all-powerful. We know that he cares for us. But Lord, I'm just not feeling it. And so, what we can do in the midst of our pain, when you know of God's saving power, but you feel like you're in another pit, that God's rescue for you is just as assured as his rescue for you was from sin and death. I mean, David says it, says he stooped, he humbled himself, he came down in order to hear our cry, and never... Never have we ever waited on the Lord in vain. He is always and will always hear our cry. And because God's ultimate rescue in Jesus Christ, it gives us perspective in our current struggles. This is why David repeats himself, why he is in fact preaching to himself. Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. Even though we hear this lesson from childhood... But how many of us actually read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest? The wise man built his house upon the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall, 
because it had been founded on the rock. Friends, we're promised storms, we're promised floods, we're promised wind, but the house that God has built in you will never founder because it is built upon the rock himself. So no matter how shaky things get, we look to him whose property is always to have mercy. And from our own miry clay pits, we cry out for the God whose arm is never too short to save and whose business it is to rescue his people. Amen.